0: Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you could join us today. If you're new to our show, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. We'd like to welcome everybody to the show all around the world at all ages and stages of life. So from people living with dementia to those that care for them, both family and professionals, to researchers, movie directors, authors, singer-songwriters, and, of course, our children as well. The only thing we request is that we have a responsible adult conversation on the show, and we have not had a problem in that in over the decade we've been doing this. So if you are interested in sharing your story or thoughts regarding dementia, please reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, we are going to be talking about dementia education in senior housing today. But before I introduce our guest, I like to always do a couple of shout outs. So... Um, First of all, if you have not been to alzheimerspeaks.com, please do so. We've updated the site. In fact, we have one whole section that is just free educational information that people have really enjoyed. You can also click on our book tab because Betty the Bald Chicken Lessons in How to Care, a children's book, uh, is now available both in uh, soft and hard copy. And if you want to program around that, we, we do that as well. You can find more information out on that book tab. Let's see. I also want to tell you about a couple of public presentations I'm doing. Not everything is public, but um, this one coming up is going to be on May 17th and also June 10th. We're going to be doing a screening of uh, A Timeless Love, which is a a film about a family and kind of community's journey uh, supporting somebody with dementia. And if you are in the Andover, Minnesota area, that's where we're going to be in the Andover YMCA. And this is sponsored by Arbor Oak Senior Living and uh, also Cedar Creek. Senior Living and then of course the YMCA in Andover and you can call for more information 763-230-9622 and this is a free event for people so just so you know that if you are doing work in the arena of dementia you might want to check out Mons Awards as well Applications are open until May 15th, and if you're an individual, you could win up to $5,000, and if you are an organization, up to $25,000, and this is for work you've already done, and there's no requirements on how you need to spend, uh, spend those dollars at all, so it really is truly an award. They also have Mauds um, Ventures. And Mauds Ventures is about uh, funding seed money for brand new ideas. And they are looking really at late-stage innovations as well as general innovations. And applications there are open until July 14th. But you can go to MaudsVentures.org or, again, mods Awards dot org for more information on either of those. And then, of course, I need to mention dementia maps. If you haven't uh, gone there, please do so. We have 150 different categories you can search. It is free to use. Uh, we're not going to collect any data on you at all. Uh, so you don't have to be wor- You don't have to worry about being hacked or scammed Uh, because I know that that's on the minds of many these days in the world that we we live in. There's a blog, a um, glossary of terms, and also an events calendar there. So you can access that again at DementiaMap.com. Okay, it is time to introduce you to our guest today, who I'm really excited to talk to. We are going to be talking with Christopher J. Doran, and he is a registered nurse who works a lot with senior living and also hospital settings. And we are going to be talking about training sessions uh, regarding dementia care in both settings. His main focus is really dementia education and how do you maximize retention of learning so that you can retain your staff as well. So lots of good tips coming. Well, Christopher, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So first of all, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to be with us today. Um, before we get started, you know, talking kind of deep diving on the topic today, I always like to ask all my um, guests if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends.
1: Yeah, so actually, my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease. Uh, when I was in high school, I didn't really know much about it, and all I knew is I enjoyed going and seeing all of his friends and spending time with them, and didn't know there was a career in taking care of people with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So, kind of, my grandfather kind of propelled me into uh, into this work.
0: Okay, wonderful. Um, one of the first questions I want to ask you is why you think it's so important that we have good education, you know, being in the forefront of, of all kinds of senior living in the, in the industry.
1: Education is something I'm very passionate about, so passionate about, I went to get my master's degree in it. Um, and what I have found is that, as Henry Ford says, the only thing worse than training your employees and having them leave is not training them and having them stay. And I found that to be so true, especially with certain companies. And what's really fascinating is the cost. So the average cost of training is approximately $1,252. This is according to the Association for Talent Development. And then the average amount of hours spent on training is about 33.5 hours. Uh, What's even more fascinating is to replace someone... Who, whether they quit or are terminated, replacement costs for a nurse are about forty thousand dollars, and then replacement costs for regular turnover of a frontline staff is about five thousand dollars, and that's due that's uh from the Sasha Corporation. And so when you talk about the cost or having someone who's not trained, and then they say, hey, you know what? I don't feel like I have the tools or resources and they leave and they feel they could get better training and promotions elsewhere, it actually costs the company a lot of money to do so.
0: That is so critically important in this day and age where, I mean, employees are like a revolving door. I mean, most of us in the industry don't even know who's where anymore because it's just like flipping pancakes out there. Um, And so I'm surprised really that this isn't looked at in a much stronger light. Um, because I think when people are educated too, they're happier at their job They're, you know, it's more fulfilling, uh, when they know what they're doing and, and why they're doing what they're doing. Cause I think that can be such a frustrating, um, point for people. What types of training do you think that we, that we need?
1: So that's a really good question. And I think one of the things I thought was really fascinating because I love statistics. I'm kind of a nerd that way. and. Uh, the University of South Florida published some, a really interesting article, and they talked about how those who did go through training, extensive training, um, they found that those employees had a less turnover rate, 59% lower staff turnover rate. They saw that staff were um, had more positive attitudes. They weren't having sloppy work. They weren't showing up late. So there was really good production produced from training well. And so what most senior living um I, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of senior living companies, what they've decided to do is go to a computer based training program. And then it's just a click off a box to say, hey, you know, we got the training done. And the truth is most staff members can click through the trainings, answer the quiz based on prior knowledge. So they're not really learning anything. Mm -hmm. It's just a click off a box. And what the research tells us is actually in order for a computer-based training program to be effective, there actually needs to be a conversation afterwards, a live conversation. So it can't just be check the box and be done. You actually have to engage the learner, um, in this case, the staff member, and get them engaged uh, based on that computer training program. Uh, some senior living companies have started rolling out these sensory programs where they put on these gloves that make them feel like they have like arthritis or, or not able to have good dexterity. They wear the goggles that change their peripheral vision, and they wear um, hearing um, or headphones to kind of um, simulate what it's like to have different types of dementia. And those tend to be very effective. We see that in all the studies regarding role-playing. It's very effective for reducing anxiety um, cause you, you know, if you have a staff member who's anxious about engaging with someone with dementia, that could be concerning. Um, but what we really need to see is more workshops, more case studies, uh, more role playing and realize that when people learn, um, we learn different than children. So children are motivated by extrinsic factors, meaning that they care about, um, Rewards. They care about candy, getting a pencil, getting a star on the board. We're adults. I only want to learn it if it's going to apply to my job and it's going to make my life easier. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we don't really do a good job of emphasizing that when we train staff, particularly when it comes to dementia. And what they also found is lecture is the least effective of all. I think we only retain, according to brain based learning theory, like 10 to 15 minutes of lecture. And then after that, it's out the window. So we really need to engage our staff. And we need to see more of that in the senior living industry.
0: You know, one of the things that, that I do, and I don't know if, I don't know if there's been any studies done on this because I I've been involved in the sensory stuff. And I did that even before the games, you know, came into play. And um, I would go into the high schools and stuff and even teach, teach that there. Cause so many things are applicable all over in terms of perceptions and and really try to try to get the kids involved. And then I've, I've done it in communities as well. But um, one of the things that I found interesting was even with the sensory stuff, I had gone through the same training three different times. It was, it was exactly the same, you know, except, you know, I'm in a different space. My mom's been living with dementia for years and years when I was going through this. And the third time, it still rattled my cage to the point I left without my purse, you know, because it was so, it, it had me so disoriented and stuff. And, I, and so, I, you know, I really think getting people involved on that sensory level is really important. But the other thing that I do is I call it emotional-based training, and I'm a, very much a storyteller because I personally think that, and, and I would love to hear your input on this, that people don't change what they do and until they feel the need to make the change. So memorizing stuff, you know, just for the test. I mean, people will, re- will retain it just to pass the test and then, you know, it's, it's out the door many times, but if they really feel like, oh my gosh, this will make a difference. I think it pulls them back to the root of why they got in the position in the first place was they wanted to help people. And I think we've, it seems to me like we've gotten away from all of that.
1: Yeah. So you're actually, um, really diving into a theory that was founded by some, uh, a guy who's still alive. His name's Eric Jensen. Um, he founded brain-based learning mm-hmm. and what he did through looking at different, uh, studies of the brain and how the brain comprehends information and retains it is that people are, we're emotional beings. Mm-hmm. And so we need an emotional connection to learn something. Um, when we have an emotional connection to something, it actually is more tangible and actually is retained in the brain uh, more readily and more frequently when compared to not having an emotional connection to that, um, whatever we're learning about. And so that's that's really important to really understand that um, emotion plays a huge role in the the ability to not only comprehend information, but then take what you've learned and apply it and use it in in your day-to-day work and and life in general.
0: Oh, interesting. See, I I took it from the spot because I'm not a researcher at all. And I I just remember looking at things like, you know, we didn't stop smoking or we didn't start wearing our seatbelts until the kids were like tugging on us going, Hey, mom and dad, you're important Mm -hmm. to me, you know, and then people started looking at things different because it came from the, it came from a heart centered spot instead of just, just a logical thing. I mean, we can hear a lot of times the statistics and know what's good or what's bad for us, but we still don't always change our decision-making process in that. And so that's really interesting. The other thing That I'm interested in hearing from you too, because I'm a firm believer in things need to be simple um, and implementable. And so often I think, I mean, I've gone to a a ton of training where it just seems like it's way more complicated than it needs to be. Um, And I don't know if you found that or not.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the major things we have to realize is who who is the audience? Who are Mm -hmm. we educating on this topic? And so if we're having a room of people who are performing one task, you may present the material very differently than if you're presenting to people who are researchers, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really important. And sometimes we do overcomplicate it. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. And what's really cool is to talk about the brain and how someone with dementia, their brain changes is actually very simple to explain um, and you can simplify it. And they always say, if you can't simplify something and teach it, then you really don't know it. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely ways to simplify um, the information we have about dementia to make it uh, easier to understand for people who hate science or hate psychology. Um, So absolutely.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I have found from that kind of emotional based piece, and this has been really interesting, just when I've personally done training, is you'll get, you'll get some people that just don't like to go to that emotional level at all. And their discomfort is so strong that they just, they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to hear it because they just want it black and white. Cause it's easier for their brains to sort things out that way, kind of getting back to knowing your audience um, in terms of, of what they like, but yet I found they still don't always take it in and really um, replicate or apply because, and again, this is, this is my, my spiel that when you, when you're missing that kind of emotional connection, um, to, to the why it loses a lot in translation in terms of the implementation part. Does that make sense?
1: No, it absolutely makes sense. And yeah, emotion is just so important. And I think when we can get people to empathize, it, it creates better results for our residents who have dementia. I think about, um, a phrase that used to annoy me, but it makes so much sense. It was, uh, you can pay us to do the work, but you can't pay us to care. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember having a boss when I was like 22 when I first got into the industry, and she always said, "I hire based on heart. I did the resume is important, but in the end, what's most important is is the person and their ability to empathize. And there are ways to get someone to empathize with someone who has dementia, but then there's people who really just do, are not willing to empathize or don't want to learn how to. And those people may be your best workers. They may show up to work on time. Um, but in reality, they're not good for your community because they're not really bring, bringing anything emotional to the community. It's all just task oriented.
0: Yeah, there was a, a group and I can't remember exactly where it was. I, I can't remember if it was Australia or the UK. Um, I'm thinking it was Australia where their training, and of course, we could not get by with it in the States here, but they don't do dementia training. They do vulnerability training. And so everyone has to come clean with what's, you know, what are they really vulnerable about? And they said, you know, staff all get really emotional. Some of them break down and cry because they've never told anybody. But their whole philosophy was, This is, you need to feel vulnerable because you have to understand where our clients and residents are at. They feel vulnerable every second of every day. And they said it also helped really build um, the team because they knew each other better and nothing was really hidden from the residents either. So if the residents knew that a, a staff was having a problem, it allowed them to participate and support them as well, because they had still a lot of knowledge and a lot of heart-centered care to be able to give. And I thought that was a really, really interesting from an approach standpoint. Have you seen anything like that in the U.S.?
1: Well, the only, I mean, in terms of senior living, not really. Uh, I think that's a really fascinating concept only because Brene Brown, who who Mm -hmm. I love, talks about the importance of vulnerability. A lot of people think Brene Brown is a motivational speaker, but she actually has her doctorate degree and she does research on vulnerability. And vulnerability is so important. She does, uh, when I I was listening to one of her talks and she talks about when she goes into these huge companies because they want a motivational speaker, she talks about vulnerability. And she says, in order for a company to be successful, the employees need to be vulnerable. And then in the same way, in order for our staff to be, successful in engaging with someone who has dementia, they need to be vulnerable. Vulnerable to how they're feeling. Um, Naomi filed uh, validation Mm -hmm. therapy. She talks about this too. You have to acknowledge the emotions you're feeling before engaging with someone. You acknowledge that, okay, this resident is making me anxious. This resident is making me angry. Uh, But I'm going to go in there knowing the feelings I have let those feelings go and then take on the emotions that this person with dementia is experiencing. So I can help them out. Uh, So we definitely have to be vulnerable and I I wish that we did teach that more.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think it even expands more. um, And this is my personal preference, but I think we need to do not only training for the resident, but for the families that we deal with. Mm -hmm. And when we don't give people permission to feel and let them know it's normal. I mean, you know, and emotions aren't good or bad. It's our reactions that can get us in trouble with all of that kind of stuff. I mean, to me, we're just building pressure cookers throughout the world because we're not allowing people to, it, you know, be authentic and say how they feel. You know, it's like you know, you're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to feel this way. Toughen up. That da 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 da, and. Yeah, we all have those feelings and we know what it's like to be told you can't act that way. You can't feel that way. Um, And it kind of makes you feel like a reject, you know, like you don't fit in and it's very uncomfortable. So I I'm a, a big supporter of the whole validation and having authentic conversations and building, you know, comfortable, safe places to be able to express that. And I think that's a missing link sometimes in senior housing too. Um, And and even in our workplaces today for, let's say, family caregivers, they don't feel like they can even talk about their caregiving journey or how exhausted or frustrated or sad or whatever it is, because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. And I think in senior housing, that can apply as well with with staff and with family in terms of it's just all gotten so awkward out there um, in terms of people being able to really express themselves. And yet I think the, the pressure on everybody has built up even to higher stakes nowadays. Um, now, one of the things that I find interesting, too, and I'm wondering about is, you know, we've got a lot of staff shortages out there. So people are doing multiple jobs and, and I have seen, and I have heard through the industry that it's harder to get staff to training because there's just no time. I mean, they're, they're trying to cover the floors. What, what do you say to that?
1: So, yeah, so that that's a very valid concern, and it's something we are experiencing in the industry right now. And so one of the, the things we can do is if you're going to do these computer-based trainings, mm-hmm. you can have a town hall. Most um, Most senior living communities have this town hall. They do monthly. My recommendation would be is to have a conversation about what was learned in the computer training. Now, the computer trainings, I think, are very boring. I don't think much gets accomplished. And as I said, the research says you need to have a conversation for it to be effective. So I would move towards more something that's interactive, whether it's like a a Zoom call that the staff can log into, or maybe a a pre-recorded YouTube video or whatever, Mm -hmm. and that they can tune in and then at the town hall discuss what was brought up on that video. Uh, Of course, that's going to cost the company money. But as we kind of pointed out earlier, when you are avoiding education because you're ta- you're worried about paying people for that extra hour or whatever, you're actually going to lose more money in the end because they're going to leave. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the other thing I found, and this has always baffled me, is so many companies offer CEUs and they're for CEUs for other companies for people yes. working other places instead of instead of putting it into their own staff and I think I think part of the the mentality was well that'll be a recruitment tool, but it really isn't a recruitment tool if you 're not following up if you 're not building a relationship with those people but i've always found that fascinating that there is less of a budget in in many companies for in-house training than there mm-hmm. is for outside training. Have have you run across that and seen that too?
1: Yeah, for the most part, that is correct. There are a few companies that have really good reputations and ha- are always pretty much max occupancy, and that's because they invest in education. It sounds silly, but it really does work. Uh, but yeah, I, I the majority of companies do not invest a lot in training. They They'll put their money on the the computer-based programming. Um, and again, I'm not bashing the computer-based programming, but it needs to be followed up with conversation. So I think the the best thing that we really need as an industry is an emphasis on education, in-person training. And that I, you're gonna have to to bring money into to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I used to be in real estate for 25 years. And when I was in real estate, the computer age hit and we went from our MLS books, you know, of doing comps and things to, oh, we're, we're going to just push a button and we're going to, we're going to send people off, you know, their, their comparatives. And, you know, what they really learned was you, cause they were really pushing high tech and they realized you need a combination of both. It's kind of like we'd all like a cure, but we have to care just as much as we push the cure. And and that, you know, I mean, that was really off-weighted too for a long time. And that seems to be leveling off that people see that we, we need money going in, in both directions. The other thing that I have found fascinating too is, you know, a, And because my mom lived in a community for 14 years, I I deeply felt this. But I would see staff training, but I didn't see much training for um, the general public or the immediate families. And so one of the things uh, that I did, this was years ago, um, was I developed a training that was it was short So it didn't take up a lot of time and we could do it in between shifts. So we would do one in the morning, typically one late afternoon, and then we would do an evening program for families. And that way everybody's kind of on the same page when it comes to communicating, because I think there can be this push pull between staff and families as well. And if you can avoid that, I think that makes a huge difference. And then you can pull in this conversation, but Part of the other problem that I that I saw that companies were really, really fearful about was even combining some of those groups. So you would have staff and family at the same ones. They were so afraid the Mm -hmm. staff might say something wrong. And I'm like, if you have a good facilitator and trainer, that becomes a learning tool. And all of these things can be explained. I mean, again, it's validating those feelings of whatever it is that's going on and explaining how that can be and how do we change that? And, and yet there's just this kind of black and white fear of, you know, this is too different (laughs) for us to comprehend. Um, And we like it the old way because we don't have time to learn new ways. I think that is kind of part of what we're up against in this day and age too, with, with uh, staff shortages and, and then also, Upper management, you know, is changing roles a lot, too, in many of these communities. And so, you know, that that changes how the engine moves as a as a group as well. So how do we shift things? Because I also know you get, you know, state to state has different regulations, too, of what is required and and different levels of what is needed. Um you know i 'm finding more companies um because of the the way the states are ruling you know they 're really kind of in some ways pushing more stats versus storytelling or in the trenches things you know they they want everything referenced and i don 't know i don 't think stats alone does it. I guess is my bottom line mm-hmm. absolutely, in, and so I think we 're hurting ourselves in the long run by going that route too, because now it is kind of black and white in a memorization. I mean, it's kind of pushed to that. And then when you apply that to, to the computer learning on top of it, without the conversation behind it, I I don't think the learning is as deep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I I was just thinking about when you were talking too, is if you're afraid of what your staff is going to say, maybe they shouldn't be working for you. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, that's, that that's always something I thought was funny uh, because I had someone raise that concern once when we wanted to do that uh, with the weekend training we were doing with families and staff. And I remember just thinking, well, if you're nervous about what the staff are going to say, then maybe they shouldn't be working in this building. Um, So yes. And, and um, I, I do think that with everything that's going on there, there is this emphasis and need for families in the community to get this training uh, and I do think that there's ways to do it that are going to protect your company's integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think companies are afraid of being bad, bad, um, uh, mouthed in those types of settings. Uh, so, but again, as you said, you need a really good facilitator, uh, who knows how to run a training, which is always my push when I, when I, see people who are in charge of trainings usually they have no educational background for doing trainings and it doesn't mean you have to get a master's degree like me you could be someone who's gone through training to run or facilitate Mm -hmm. um but you know you really do need someone who's really good at designing those
0: well and i think understanding both sides and i'll use a i'll just use one program that that i i do and it's uh we we titled it at one time. Why do families act the way they do? <laughs> because that's, the you know, when you're doing staff training, that's how they're looking at it. But in doing that training, we share both sides because, you know, if staff are honest, and if we allow them to be honest, there are going to be families that push their buttons that are, you know, just in there to kind of attack, and they're tired of it, and they'll scoot into a room or down the hall or tell them I'm busy right now, you know, because it's, it's exhausting for them. But they're on the flip side, families look at staff that way, too, you know, and if we don't understand the psychology behind the mentality of why people act the way they do, like, for example, I always say, you know, What people are forgetting is that families don't trust you when, especially when somebody first moves in, they don't think anyone can give any better care than what they did. And the only way we know how to fix a problem is to find the problem. So when they show up, they're looking for the problem and they think they're helping. And it might be that the person, you know, like the housekeeping just left the room and the resident ripped their bed apart and threw a couple of Kleenexes on the floor within five minutes of them coming. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, they're not taking care of this. This isn't supposed to look like this. And so then they go on a rampage not understanding how it got changed or why it got changed. And so I, to me, I think all those things are really healthy conversations again, because it gets to the emotion behind our reactions. And and then people can understand, oh yeah, I've I've done that too. Now it makes sense. Or in it, and I think it helps lead people to even how to explain something to someone. You know, we get so I think micromanaged in a lot of ways that we've gotten so task oriented that we forget about if it's the feelings of the residents, our our team members or family members, or potential clients, you know, we're forgetting that whole piece about their whys. And, and I think that's so, so important. Now, have you seen some like great examples of training in, in senior housing?
1: Yeah, I, there are three companies I know of that will actually not allow their staff to step foot on the floor when hired for two weeks regardless of position, whether they're frontline staff or management, they have to attend a two-week in-person training that goes into the biology, the psychology, the sociology uh, of caring for people who have dementia. And also, you know, going over policies and procedures and going over the different signature programs that that the company has. And then from there, every month, they use the computer-based programming. Again, it's not bad, but Once a month, they have a in-person discussion at Change of Shifts. They -hmm. have like a paper that guides them through certain questions. Hey, guys, you know, we know that you guys learned about this on the computer. Tell me in this situation, what would you do? Uh, What makes you say what you're telling me? And so really getting the staff to really talk about what they've been learning. And then they'll do uh, every six months, they'll kind of do this um, more engaged, like quick six-hour um thing that the staff can go to they'll have it at different days so to make sure staff can go and it's just kind of like a a routine follow-up almost like a like a checkup with your doctor see how you're doing with uh caring for those who have dementia so when i see trainings like that i find those very effective because those are companies that want to invest in their staff Mm -hmm. and those companies again have very good reputations and there's a reason for that because they're investing in their staff
0: Well, and don't you think too, when, when they're investing in their staff, I mean, it is you, you see it from top to bottom, you know, some, some companies will only invest at certain levels for -hmm. training and then the message it's not consistent. And, and I think that that hurts. And I, I love, you know, when you're talking about, and then they get together to meet because people can say, Hey, this worked or this didn't work. Right. You know, or they can share what, ha- you know, a lot of times I think when people are, you know, logging stuff, it's all negative and we're not logging the good stuff, you know, right. and the things that have, you know, brought joy or calmness to, to the resident, to the family, to the staff. And we should be sharing that good stuff too, um, with everyone else. But, you know, there's not enough time in the day if it's, if, if you don't have, a procedure or an openness to share those types of things.
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, a company that I know of that did a really cool thing when they did change a shift um, or they were having staff meetings, they allowed mm-hmm. one of the frontline staff to run it, mm-hmm. which was so fascinating because they would bring stuff up that management wouldn't think of. Oh, Yeah. So it was really cool to see that. I've never seen that done before. It was one company in particular, and I thought that was really fascinating. And it worked. It really worked well. It was really cool. They had a med tech, uh, the one who passes out the medications, run uh, the change of shift report, and of course the the nursing director was present for it. But it was like really fascinating.
0: Well, yeah, when you have those frontline staff involved like that, I think, I I think so often many of them feel like they're not heard, they're not listened to, Mm -hmm. and it brings a level of respect um, to them and they get excited they're, they feel part of the team and so often, I don't think they feel like they're part of the team and that can go anywhere from activities directors or life enrichment, whatever you want to call them, which are one of the key people that are really in the thick of things that say our voice really isn't heard. You know, we, we fill out our, our, you know, you know, our little reports, but we're really not asked for details or, you know, to be able to, to um, give information and, and even housekeeping and maintenance, they, you know, their interactions are important in kitchen staff, the the things that they see. And if we're going to really serve somebody in a holistic fashion, you know, we need to pull in all those people and hear what's happening. Front desk staff too, I think. Absolutely.
1: You know, I was, when I uh, was running nursing departments, I would during orientation, I would go in and meet with everyone, and I would say, "I don't care what department you are. If you see something, my you can always come to me." And everyone had my number, regardless of their department. If they noticed a change in behavior, or they were acting weird, or they seemed more tired than usual, usually it was caught by someone who had no uh, nursing training or CNA training. They it was the programming staff or or the front desk person used to report a lot of stuff because everyone likes to hang out in the lobby. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those people need to be empowered. We actually, there's a, um, it's going to bother me because I can't think of the name. There's a, a note uh, pad that we used to give the staff, every staff member, regardless of where they were, what department, and, oh, it was a stop and watch card. And the S stood for, um, or I can't remember the full acronym, but W stood for walking. I think there was something about eating. One was about ambulating. And you would just check off if there was a change in the resident and you would put it in the director of nursing's mailbox. Um, and we caught so many UTIs. We caught um, at the time that this was going on, we we actually were able to catch COVID before major symptoms were happening. So it was a really fascinating tool and the staff felt empowered and you would see them fill stuff out all the time. I would My mailbox would be filled with these papers and we caught some really cool stuff, swallowing disorders. I mean, it was really fascinating to give the staff the power. And of course you have to train them how to use that paper. Um, but it was really fascinating to see what can happen when staff feel empowered.
0: Well, and, and, and you made it simple, you know, it was just check. Everybody knew what it stood for, you know, and if they needed to write an extra note, they could. Um, so it was easy, easy to do and not a, not a, Heavy weight, you know, added uh, to what they're doing. You know, have you ever seen? Um, and I, I know, again, overseas, a lot of them do that. And I've seen a, a few here, and I've worked with some companies who have implemented this. But I think this is a, a brilliant um, training piece too, where every staff at every level has to do some type of interactive um, piece with a resident. Um, Some do it weekly, some do it monthly, you know, at different intervals for 15 minutes to a half an hour, just so they know why they're there and getting to know the different residents and stuff. Have you seen much of that implemented? And what are your thoughts about that?
1: So not at a community level, but I remember there were certain department heads that would ask particularly programming would ask their person coming in for an interview to actually run a program Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I remember as a when I was a director of nursing I would walk whoever I was interviewing through the community and purposely see if they would interact with the residents or not Mm -hmm. just to see oh is this someone who's going to go out of their way to interact with the resident or are they just here for a paycheck it was really cool uh Fascinating too to see during interviewing processes where if there was garbage on the floor, some people who were interviewing would actually pick up the garbage, mm-hmm. and that person usually got a job because they pay attention to detail. Um, I knew someone who would purposely leave a cup on the floor just to see if the interviewer person would pick it up. The person being interviewed would pick it up. It's kind of an interesting thing, um, but no, I haven't seen it at like a, a company wide level, and I think even not only just for hiring, but just for training, it would be really great to, whenever there was an interaction, to pull that staff member aside and say, what do you think went right? What do you think went wrong? To be more reflective. But in order to do that, you really do need someone who has the time. And so mm-hmm. the companies do have to invest in that staff person. And there are companies who do, who invest in a nurse educator, or they inv- invest in something called a dementia specialist, just to be that eyes and ears and not have to worry about running a department, but their main focus is training and intervention,
0: which is really neat. Yeah, I, I liked that piece where people had to interact because it 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 built relationships, and I think so often, um, which is really sad in healthcare that we've lost that relationship based piece because we've gotten so task oriented with, uh, you know, with staff shortages and just. Um, I, you know, to me, it seems like we have a lot more micromanaging going on too. Um, Absolutely.
1: It was really cool about the, the stop and watch. I, I pulled it up because it was going to bother me. It's called a stop and watch card. It's done by Interact, the company, and it, it allows people not to feel micromanaged. They feel like they have ownership of the care of the residents, regardless of department. So S stood for seems different than usual. T stands for talks or communicates less overall needs more help, Uh, participating less in activities, ate less, diarrhea, drank less, weight change, nervous more than usual, more tired, changes in skin color, and then help with walking, transferring, toileting more than usual. So very simple. There's no medical terms on there for someone Mm -hmm. to not know what they mean. And you just circle what you notice and give it to the director of nursing. And and it really does uh, save lives.
0: Wow, I love that. And when you mentioned those UTIs, I mean, that, you know, uh, that is something so standard. I remember when my mom got her first one, and I thought she was being um, over medicated. I mean, eyes rolling back in the head, she couldn't hold her head up. And, and they're like, Oh, she's got a UTI. I'm like, there is no way this is a UTI, you know, and it was like, Oh, my God, it's a UTI. <laughs> and that's when yeah. I learned all the different symptoms that can come out, you know, from those things. And it was incredible.
1: One of the most uh, fascinating things for me to see, because I not only do I work in assisted living, but I also work in the acute care setting in the hospital. And what's really fascinating to see is how much electrolyte imbalances can change the personality of someone. Even if they don't have dementia, the, the elderly are very prone to behavioral disturbances when their electrolytes are off. Where you and I, we, we may just feel tired, but to them, they become more agitated. They may start slurring their words. It's very, very interesting how this stop and watch tool given in the right uh, hands to the, to the staff has really helped people live longer because those things may have not been noticed um, that quick.
0: Wow. Well, and like, when it comes to, you know, uh, not being as ambulatory or the imbalance, I mean, we all know when there's a fall, boy, that can be the turning point for someone's health. And and are they going to bounce back or not? If it's, if it's a hip or a leg or a crack to the head, I mean, all of those things are so, so significant. And then, you know, if they need surgery Then you have the anesthesia, you know, piece that pops in, especially with dementia that can really change things up as well. So there's, there's so many great reasons to use uh, that type of tool. I am so glad you looked that up. That's, that's fantastic. So one of the things I wanted to um, talk to you about too, is how, how do you encourage, you know, companies to make some of these major changes when costs are so tight out there. I mean, you, you hear about so many communities kind of on the brink right now. And I know in Minnesota, we've got, you know, nursing homes, skilled care that are just on the edge of are they going to make it or not. And, you know, ever since COVID, I mean, things have really tipped tipped the scale a lot.
1: Yeah, this is a very complicated issue, particularly because We're seeing people staying at home longer than they usually would. would. So they're coming to our communities sicker um, and declining faster. On top of that, as you noted, occupancy has been a huge issue for many communities because no one wants to come, especially after COVID. So my advice for communities who want to invest in education but are concerned about finances is instead of hiring an educator per community... Um, depending on what your state laws are, obviously, Um, assisted living, there's more leeway with this, but you can hire like a nurse educator for the company Mm -hmm. who can train a designated person at each community to run these trainings. And maybe that nurse educator, or it could be a health educator, um, goes Mm -hmm. to the buildings, checks up on that designated person, sees how they're doing, what support they need. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then the question also becomes, is looking at your line items and seeing... Okay, where could we cut to put money into education? Mm-hmm. Do we, I, one of the things I really found fascinating, and this is getting into like budget stuff, but when you look at finances for marketing and marketing on paying for apartments.com, for example, um, may work for like an independent living setting, but is there a way not to market that for assisted living? particularly in like New Jersey, or for companies that are referral-based fees? Mm -hmm. uh, Do you really need those? Like actually sit down and look, how many referrals are you getting from these sources? And if you're not getting many, then maybe it's time to cut funding to that referral source and invest it in education. So I think a lot of this kind of looking at the budget is really seeing what's working and what's not, and you have to be honest with uh, what's not working.
0: Yeah, and I think there are a lot of these referral companies that, that I mean, some of them are, are spending thousands and hundreds of thousands and even large companies, millions of dollars with these mm-hmm. referral fees. And, you know, what I've heard from companies is we can't afford to not be on there because they feel like they won't be known. And again, I think, you know, most of the referrals are going to come from people, you know, within your community. Um, and. You know, word of mouth costs nothing, you know, so if you're building relationships and you're giving good care and you're educating the families along with your staff, um, that can change everything. But again, it's a whole shift of mentality and purpose, uh, you know, of of where things are going, because I know I've, I mean, I've been on a zillion tours, probably just like you have been, and so many don't educate why they do what they do. Why, I mean, from the furniture to the lighting to the paint color to the plate choices to um the activities. And I, I mean the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, when people take the time to really do those tours and educate their families, they're differentiating themselves from everyone else. It's just saying, you know, look at our design, it's very fluffy, but they're not saying why they've done what they've done.
1: If I talk about like, if I mention to you, like the Ritz, for example, <laughs> you don't see any advertisements for the Ritz, but you know about the Ritz <laughs> and there's an assisted living company in New Jersey. And I won't say their name, but when you say their name, everyone knows who they are. They have a very good reputation, but they actually don't use referral services because <laughs> they don't need to. And they're one of the companies that really invest in education. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a really, um, there. it is very possible to not need to use um, referral services if you have a, a good enough name for yourself. Um, now, again, referral services have a place. And I'm not saying they don't. Um, they do help families kind of navigate. There's some companies that are really good at helping families navigate. So I'm not saying to, you know, that all referral services are bad, but... There are ways to cut to to cut um, and redistribute that finance to education.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think um, I again, and I think this has to do with the the day and age of of computer and high tech, where everybody thought, well, we have to be placed here and we have to do it this way because this was the pitch that was given, and it'll lessen our our staff time. But again, who knows your community better? or who should know your community better than your staff and your residents and the families, you know, that have placed a loved one there. And, you know, I used to be in real estate for 25 years. So I worked a lot with helping families transition. And to me, that was just absolute key in really understanding who is your company at all levels and how, how are you going to serve? instead of, you know, these, these are the fees we charge, you know, for, for everything, this is what's included and this isn't. Um, I, I had a uh, program the other day, which was really interesting. And we were talking about even the questions that are asked um, of families, you know, to get to know a resident. And typically, it's about, you know, what do they like? And, and, you know, what don't they like those kinds of things. And, and then as staff, We answer them in task form. You know, if you do this, they'll like that. If you don't do this. But we don't discuss, again, emotions of how do we want our loved one to feel. And I think staff have to talk about that, not only with families, but with other staff of what kinds of emotions are we creating And are they, you know, sometimes mirroring us back because we're actually the one with the attitude (laughs) and and they Mm -hmm. were perfectly calm and content before we, you know, walked into the room and analyzing some of those things as well. But again, if we're not educating people to even look at some of those unconscious things that are happening and our multi-sensory engagement, you know, we miss some pretty big pieces in terms of of our care culture, I think.
1: I'm thinking about a couple residents I've had and they liked particular foods. And so one of the things that would be said is, oh, if they don't want to eat, they'll always eat a cheese Mm blintz, or they'll always eat uh, a hamburger. They love hamburgers. But there's emotion connected to that food. Mm -hmm. So if you can find out the emotion that's connected to that food, it makes a huge impact. It, you know, the cheese blintzes, for example. Well, this person's mother made them for her every weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hamburger was reminiscing of this guy. He would go to baseball games with his kids, and they would have a burger every Saturday on the grill during the summer. So, you know, going even further into the emotional piece makes that resident feel connected and seen and heard, and that can actually do a greater job at reducing unwanted expressions than just giving them the burger or the cheese blints.
0: Oh, exactly. Exactly. But again, so many times I think we're so rushed. We don't think about those things. It's like, here you go. This will make you feel better. And then we're off to the next person. Kind of like the, the, the med tech, a lot of times they'll say, you know, they're giving one person the pill while they're looking for the next one instead of engaging the person when they're, when they're giving the, giving the pill and um but we've we've trained people to to do their jobs that way you know because the time crunches is out there and so it's nice to see i know like when i go on tours and things like that you know one of the things that i love the best is i love it when staff stop and talk to every resident Mm -hmm. you know they don't miss a soul and it might just be a hi or a hug, or you know whatever it is or a, a short conversation, or they introduce me to that person, but to me, that says they they get their job. They know the importance of engagement.
1: That also, when you're talking about the med pass, that mm-hmm. was an issue we had in one building. and what we found was, uh, of course, with talking with the doctor, but if we change the times so mm-hmm. that there's enough time to spend time with the resident, You had it created such a difference. So we realized that it's most times the computer automatically schedules medications for 8 or 10 a.m. automatically. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take into account whether the resident wakes up late. It doesn't take into account that the resident used to take those meds at night because some meds you can take at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really getting to know the residents and then adjusting the med times so the med tech has the time to interact with the resident and not feel like they have to get all these meds passed within that. It's like a, I think a two hour window. So mm-hmm. if it's an eight o'clock med, you have from seven to nine to give it, which is even more interesting because in the hospital, you actually have a greater window to pass meds. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's actually kind of a fascinating thing. Cause I remember when I transitioned to hospital work, I was like, oh, there's a lot more time to give meds. Mm-hmm. I could spend more time with patients. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> so I think that's something community should definitely look at as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, you know, in terms of assessing how somebody's learning, how do you how do you actually go about that?
1: So, there's a couple ways. Uh, the most uh, the most credible, I would say, is doing a pre and post exam. Mm -hmm. It could be like five questions. It doesn't need to be anything crazy. See what the knowledge was before and the knowledge after. And then when you're talking about the real nerdy educational stuff, there's something called Bloom's Taxonomy. Bloom's Taxonomy was created by this guy, Benjamin Bloom, in 1956 with a couple collaborators. And he found there's a hierarchy to knowledge and expression of that knowledge. So the, the, the most basic one would be remembering. I remember that Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. Um, Then the second one is understanding. I understand that Alzheimer's disease is an accumulation of amyloid plaques and tau tangles. Okay, I'm just like regurgitating information, right? But where it gets really interesting is when you move up that knowledge scale towards analyze, evaluate, and create, someone who really understands and you're assessing that they understand this knowledge is going to produce new work, meaning... I know that Mrs. Smith has Alzheimer's disease. I know that she has uh, cellular death because of this and that she, cheese blintzes are an example. I know that she loves cheese blintzes. It reminds her of her mother and Mother's Day is coming up and she's going to be triggered. So I'm going to bring her cheese blintzes and we're going to reminisce about her mother. That's actually creating a program, uh, like mm-hmm. a one-to-one um, programming visit. And that's telling us, uh, like an educational assessor, that, oh, this uh, staff member understands the knowledge that they were taught because they're actually creating something with that knowledge. And Mm -hmm. that's really where we want all staff, regardless if they're a housekeeper or a nurse, to create something with a resident as opposed to just regurgitating information.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's so important. And, you know, to me, it's just getting to the why. Why are we doing this? You know, why is it important? And, um, I think so often we don't we don't ask why we just ask what, right? And and then we're we're missing a lot there. Um, are there some examples of successful programs? I mean, you you had mentioned that you know that there were three. I think it was three companies that you said just do an exceptional job. And I don't know if you want to share those names or or not in terms of um, what they're doing and how they're
1: doing it? Sure. Um, Well, there is a a company in New Jersey that actually has like a learning university. Um, Mm -hmm. So they, it's it's dedicated to training. They will actually bus every staff member, regardless Uh of position, to the corporate office for training. Mm -hmm. And each staff member can sign up for corporate trainings throughout the year. So this company really invests in that. Um, When we talk about that company they have someone who oversees education. Like that's mm-hmm. their sole purpose for the entire company. So you you really, any dementia training program really needs an educator. Mm-hmm. Again, there are different types of, ed- there's nurse educators, there's health educators, but someone who understands curriculum design, implementation, learning theory, and assessment of the learner is really important. One of the things that I also found to be very effective and it sounds silly is providing food. Mm-hmm. Not only does it send a message of, hey, we actually care about you and we're willing to spend money on you because staff really do like that. Um, we used to provide like bagels and fruit for breakfast. And then we would order luncheon, whether it was like Chinese or, or pizza um, and salad. And then trainings should be longer than like a, a five-hour training. I mm-hmm. remember one company, their uh, onboarding training was five hours.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember thinking, this is, this is why there's such high turnover. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, the training was five hours. That was it. Um, they covered everything they needed to cover because they checked off the boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, and they actually, for the exam, the post-exam, they went through the exam together and the person running it just told them what to circle. And I remember, and I was in this orientation (laughs) before I was in management and I was like, oh my gosh, this just doesn't seem right to me. (laughs) Um, compared to other companies that will take their staff out for a few days, up to two weeks. Uh, Mm -hmm. so 10, uh, eight hour days. Mm -hmm. Um and do different types of trainings with them. You see a much different um, outcome when you do that.
0: I totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, you know, even when you mentioned like the food, again, it was just a respect for them that they feel that they're, that they're valuable to the company. I, I mean, it's a minor detail or transporting them, like you said. Um, so it's one less thing that they have to worry about making it as, as simple and, is really rewarding and respectful um to their schedules and to their lives um i think makes a huge huge difference
1: we also used to give like um on the tables because we everyone was sitting in tables so they could interact with each other there would be like candy in the center we had you could get up and get a drink we didn't want you to feel like you were stuck in a seat and then giving like the the what do you call it the like the branding, so like the pen with the with the company logo and and a bag, and they all, everyone got a binder with everything in it, and they could write in their binder, and it was it was printed in color, like it was pretty. It wasn't just like photocopied in black and white. So like really putting the effort to say, hey, this education is really important. We're investing a lot of time and energy into it, and you guys should as well. And they feel appreciated. Oh, this it sounds silly, but getting a a, a very nice binder in color. In mm-hmm. like a, a very nice paper texture for the mm-hmm. papers inside. That like speaks volumes about the company that you're working for.
0: Oh, I, I agree. I, I totally agree. And I think um I think staff nowadays don't don't feel that respect as much as they used to. You yeah. know, th- that they're cared for and they're supported. And that this, you know, we're not putting you through this just because, you know, the state says we have to, but we know we're going to be providing a better experience, not only for you, but for our residents and everyone else who walks through our door, you know, and that's that's what we're about, is providing a, a good, healthy experience with understanding. And I also think when you have those types of training, people feel more comfortable sharing their experiences where if it's just a, a one and done type thing, they're like, well, they don't really want to hear from me or I'm not really comfortable asking. Cause I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm supposed to. And yet yeah. to me, those are like the critical, you want them asking those questions or saying, how do I deal with this situation? Um, you know, that, that avoids a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of heartache and tragedy that can come up later on down the road people and it can be a learning experience for everyone and when you when you when you actually have that open door policy where it's not just that you're saying come in and and ask or tell whatever you need to do but you're 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 really listening and following through with what they what they have to say i remember when i was in uh healthcare. And I loved, I, I, and I am still good friends with my boss and I I loved, loved, loved her philosophy. She said, I have an open door policy. She said, but it's not one where you can come in and just complain. And she Mm -hmm. really had to take ownership. And she said, if you have an issue, I want you to come in with one or two ways to alleviate that. How do we improve the situation? And so she really got the staff involved And she says, I'll be honest, I'm not always going to agree with what you bring in, but then there was a conversation of why, and it was a learning experience. And I thought it was just brilliant, you know, because it's great because it set the tone, you know, for people. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I can't believe how fast the time has blown (laughs) by here. Is there there anything that we haven't covered that?
1: Um, I think we talked about a lot. I, I. You know, this is, as I said, I'm very passionate about education. And I think when you invest in education, the outcome always favors the not investing in education. And if anyone has any questions or wants to learn more, they can always reach out to me because I'm very passionate about it, as I said. And I think one of the biggest uh, things I just kind of talking about, just kind of what you just mentioned, and just to close with this, sometimes when we... Have staff members who have a desire to learn and they're not causing the drama and they're not gossiping and they have that strong desire to learn, but maybe they're like not producing the results that you've wanted. That may be better than the results, uh, the person that's producing all these amazing results, but is very toxic for the workplace. Jake Welch says this an organization's ability to learn and translate that learning into action rapidly is the ultimate competitive advantage and i agree with that
0: <laughs> yeah well and i'm glad you you brought up about that toxic employee because boy people scatter like rats and it really can ruin a company's reputation and yep. even though they look like perfection, I mean, if you don't understand what it's doing to the team, you are missing out, and there's a level of education that you as a manager need to get on board with because uh, that one person is making your job a lot harder and a lot more expensive in terms of budgeting with with having to replace all these people all Absolutely. the time as well <laughs> and that is one of one of the um I guess biggest complaints I hear from employees these days is why, why do they keep a toxic employee? You know, and I think sometimes it's probably because they're worried about getting sued because they're, you know, toxic employee can be very threatening um, Mm -hmm. to not only the other employees, but to uh, the corporation as a whole. But uh, again, it's a matter of documentation And, um, and having that, I think, strong philosophy of, of teamwork because, uh, you know, and that open door policy where people can come in and talk about how they're not feeling comfortable in a situation. Um, and so sometimes I think managers miss out on that as well, because they don't feel like they can go in and, and talk about that. So, um, so what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Is it going to your LinkedIn's, uh, profile then?
1: Yeah. LinkedIn's the best way to get in touch with me. That's how most people have gotten in touch with me. And then, um, I'll exchange, uh, like email and phone number and all that stuff. Uh, I have, it's something I'm just very passionate about doing. I have companies reach out to me, asking me questions about things, and I have no problem, uh, talking about all the things we talked about today.
0: Okay. And again, they can go to Christopher J. Doran and then healthcare um, is yes. what what I believe your title is on LinkedIn there. And, um, you know, LinkedIn is just such a powerful, powerful tool. So again, thank you for your time. For our listeners, I hope you like, click and share this information. I think, I think we covered a lot of ground for um, not only you know management in training, but for staff in terms of what to look for when they're looking for a, a job, um, in terms of having support as well as families. So you know, be a giver of hope. Take a second and just share this because there are people in your sphere of influence that need this information, and we need to make it as easy as possible for them to to grab a hold of. So thanks, everybody. Appreciate your time today. Bye now.